World Cup winning Springbok Joost van der Westhuizen revolutionized what it meant to be a scrum half in professional rugby. After him, scrum halves could never be nuggety or lippy again. With his sniping, his kicking game, his speed and his difficult-to-tackle brilliance, he prized apart the narrow definition of what a scrum half could do. He had torn up the manual. Welcome to The Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred and welcome to the show. The following is an extract I wrote for my book Vuvuzela Dawn. Jos van Westhuizen redefines scrum half play to drive South Africa to a first Tri-Nations title, August 1998. While making his way between classrooms at FH Urdendal High in Pretoria, Jos van Westhuizen was known for dropping syringa berries onto his right foot before hoofing them into the shrubbery. It was not the first time the young scrum half improvised a practice routine. Catching was sometimes done, according to his first coach at Tucky's, Rudy Jobert, with bricks in the Van der Westhuizen backyard. Quote, It forced you to make the catch, didn't it? asked Jobert with the ghost of a smile. If you missed the brick, you lost your teeth. Later, noticing a theme that had bothered Uist's high school coaches, Jobert encouraged Uist to drop pebbles onto the same right foot that had scooped syringa berries. No one could quibble with the erudition of van der Westhuizen's left peg, but his Tucky's coaches still fretted about the comparative weakness of the right. Passing to his right was also the more difficult of the two passing options, which meant that Joost was essentially wrong-footed and wrong-handed. Spring-loaded competitiveness would only take this rangy athlete so far. Sooner or later, he would need to iron out the left-leaning kinks of his game. Van Westhuizen's breakout year at F.H. Urdendal was in 1987, the first of his two years of first 15 rugby. Many of the first team had, like him, come up with the previous season's under-15 side, and they joined the matrix to form possibly the best side F.H. Urdendal had ever had. Led by skipper Nimrod Latachan, the forwards were plucky rather than gigantic, but the team made up for lack of forward bulk with quicksilver backs. During a long season, outside centre Rian Boerter, later to become a famous pole vaulter, scored 38 tries. That year the school had an inspired administrator's cup run, doing what they could to honour the school motto Streef Hoog, which means aim high. Sometimes they won convincingly, sometimes they squeaked through to the next round. By the end of a long and arduously competitive season, they had finagled their way into the final at the Pam Brink Stadium against Springs Hoogenoote Hoerskool. Although they lost the final 14-18, Van Westhuizen was beginning to attract attention. Only in Standard 9 that year, he played like a ninth forward. Or was it an eighth back? He was everywhere. Quote, Our locks were both small that year, says Jonathan Grevenstein, Van Westhuizen's high jump coach, who also took a keen interest in the school's rugby. Joost used to catch the ball at kickoff because he was taller than them and he had such an explosive jump from high jumping, it was difficult to keep him out of the game. Named after an Afrikaner technocrat who had a brief flirtation with the pro-Nazi Osava Brandwacht in the Second World War, 
F.H. Urdendahl High School was founded in 1953. The salient feature of this parquet-floored institution full of old Transvaal Education Department gloom is that it is on the edge of things. Beyond the three deep ramshackle stands adjacent to the first 15 rugby field on which Van Westhuizen played so many times is scrub and thornbush. Beyond that, the township of Eersterist. Past that, the slap-happy sprawl of Mamelodi. There is a school for deaf hereabouts and one for epileptics. The suburbs that surround the school are mainly poor. Houses are humble, no grass on the verges, no swimming pools twinkle in the backyards. Jan Niemand Park, a feeder suburb for F.H. Urendal, is often referred to as Jan Branavein Park. In other words, the place in which brandy and coke is the preferred drink. The places in which Van Westhuizen grew up are not, however, without homely beauty. Wide-crowned fever trees with delicate green trunks line traffic islands for hundreds of meters. It is not uncommon to see young couples, hair bleached from too much sun, selling watermelons alongside Buffyanspoort Road, the road on which F.H. Urdendahl School finds itself. For many, school was an occasion for sport rather than an institution of learning. The young Van Westhuizen excelled at both high jump and long jump. He hurdled. On Saturday afternoons, after rugby, Joost, his two brothers, one older, one younger, and his parents played korfball, a sport not similar to handball, but one in which passing is underarm. The game, think many who coached him, widened Joost's peripheral vision. It also sharpened Van Westhuizen's aptitude for slipping through gaps others couldn't see. Quote, if you put a sporting challenge in front of him, says Gravenstein, his eyes shone. Joost's dad worked as a manager at the Silverton Testing Station, where learner drivers came to pass their license. Although the family holidayed religiously at the Impala Hotel on the KwaZulu-Natal south coast, luxuries were scarce. Van Westhuizen said in later life that it wasn't important where you came from, but where you were going. According to Gravenstein, he also said, quote, Africa is a tough continent. They cut off your legs and call you shorty. They cut off your arms and they call you stompy. Van Westhuizen took his rampaging talent with him to Tuckies, where he undertook a bridging year in 1989. According to Joubert, Joost radiated leadership, so he immediately made him captain of the Tuckies under-19 side. Quote, we played against correctional services under-20s twice that season, says Joubert. They were a year older and so a year bigger and stronger, and at that age it makes a difference. Joost got injured in the home game at L.C. de Villiers at Tuckies, and he was bleeding so badly he needed to come off and get bandaged up. He came back and scored the winning try by breaking out of our 22 and out-sprinting everyone. Before his first full season of under-19 rugby was over, Van Westhuizen was promoted to the Tuckies under-20 team. The incumbent scrum half was Johan Roo, a player Van Westhuizen would jostle, nudge and rub shoulders with in one form or another for the next six years. At first, the Tuckies coaches were nothing if not pragmatic. Roo had a good enough all-round kicking game to slot in at fly half. He was also slightly older than Van Westhuizen, so could provide guidance with his greater experience. With Van Westhuizen at scrum half, the two made an irresistible combination. 
except that sometimes they didn't. Sometimes Rue was simply chosen in his preferred scrum half position, relegating Van Vesthuizen to the bench. The following week, roles were reversed, with Rue being benched. The coach's indecision played havoc with Ewers' confidence, sharpening a sense of grievance that was never far from the surface. Suddenly, after a season and a half of happy Corsais rugby, attracting attention and easing through the ranks, he was suddenly failing to progress. Not for the first time, he played in a strop. By 1992, having already played Curry Cup rugby at Northerns, Van Vesthuizen was chosen at Scrum Half for the junior Springboks. At the end of a demanding tour of Australia, the All Blacks travelled west over the Indian Ocean, playing five times in South Africa, including a one-off test against the box. The junior box were honoured with a Saturday fixture. Vainant Klaassen, who had captained the Springboks during the politically divisive tour of New Zealand in 1981, was in the crowd that day at Loftus. The all-black tour represented a return and a homecoming for South African rugby. It was an emotional afternoon. Quote, Ewest had a blinder, he says. The junior box would usually wear dark blue jerseys and shorts. That clashed with the All Blacks, however, so they wore white jerseys that afternoon. The junior box lost 25-10, but I certainly noticed Ewest. The gears of Van Vesthuizen's burgeoning international career meshed perfectly with South Africa's sporting return from isolation. Some South African sportsmen, Yanni Breert, Max Maponiani, Clive Rice, were in the twilight of their careers and so were given nothing more than a tantalising taste by readmission. By contrast, Van Vesthuizen was the ideal age. When Nelson Mandela was released from prison on the 11th of February 1990, Van Vesthuizen was in his second year at Tuckies, nine days short of his 19th birthday. When he made his home debut for the Springboks against England at Loftus four years later, F.W. de Klerk and Nelson Mandela were sitting in the stands. South Africa's first democratic elections had taken place just over a month before. Apartheid had been thrown onto the scrap heap of history. While South Africa's politicians stared bravely into the future, her rugby players struggled to embrace the international game. They lacked technical expertise, craftiness, discipline. They had assumed that the hothouse that was Curry Cup rugby would serve them well. They were wrong. South African rugby was parochial and riven with provincial animosities. Johan Leroux was sent home from New Zealand for biting. Ian McIntosh, the coach on that tour, was unceremoniously dumped. The start to Van international career was similarly halting and inconclusive. He would play, as he did against England on his home debut, only to get dropped. Rue, his bête noire, was in his way, but so too were the demons in his head. He needed to sort himself out. He also needed the rugby planets to align in his favour. Kitch Christie was duly appointed to succeed McIntosh and, after his first test in charge at home against Argentina, U.S. noticed that Rue, Christie's preferred scrum half in that game, was walking gingerly. An old knee injury had flared up and Rue decided to have an operation. Not only did the decision open a vacancy at scrum half for the second test, but Rue would also be out for months, 
missing the upcoming end-of-year tour to Britain and Ireland. This was it, thought Joost. Having waited outside the gate for months, Van Evestesen now slipped into the garden of the elect. He would show Christie the tour to Britain and Ireland at the end of 1994 was to be the making of him. He announced himself in the test against Scotland at Murrayfield, where he swooped on a loose ball early in the second stanza, skirted the blindside turn like a rally driver, and bounced for the line. Quote, it was almost as if the Scots had been at the whisky at half-time, wrote Brow Scott in the London Sunday Times. Van Evestesen scored within seconds, burrowing through the Scottish forwards and sailing straight over under the posts. He jumped in the air in delight. He couldn't believe it. Neither could we. For whatever reasons, language and temperament surely played their part, Van Evestesen and Mackintosh never really clicked. Now it was different. Christie understood Pretoria. He understood the part rugby played in the city's identity and understood how language operated in the rugby player's world. Christie wasn't beyond petty convention, insisting that the players call him Mr. Christie, which the conservative team instinctively respected. More importantly, he spoke their language. He was direct and transparent, and at times even a little paternalistic. Under him, the players felt secure. There were issues to solve in Great Britain. Christie, his assistant Gesi Pinar and Joubert, postponed the decision on whether Tian Strauss and Francois Pinar, both fine players, both provincial captains to whom their players had a fierce loyalty, could be in the same box squad. All three fretted about who was the better eighth man, Adrian Richter or Rudolf Strauli. They also worried about the fly-half midfield axis. It was something that bothered Klaassen, who recalls making a special trip to see Christie to plead Joel Stransky's case. He was convinced by the young man's credentials and remembers his Durban University side beating a powerful Glenwood Old Boys unit in a late 1980s club game, thanks to four Stransky drop goals, a motif that was to make a nation-building appearance many years later. Quote, with Joel in that side, we beat a powerhouse Tuckies unit 14-9 in the opening game of the 1988 club championships, says Klaassen. We were a light side, but we were a plucky one. Klaassen and the Bok management team were on the same wavelength. Although Joubert points out that he and Christie weren't overly enthused about Stransky's form on the tour of Britain and Ireland at the end of 1994, they saw significant progress at the beginning of the following season. With injury crippling Peter Miller and Henny LaRue moving from fly-half to first centre, they began to realise that their best half-back combination involved Stransky and Van Evestesen. Quote, Joost established himself on the tour of Great Britain, said Joubert, making the implicit point that Drew was now confined to the bench. He got the recognition for what he was and what he could do. Van Evestesen went into the World Cup with a reputation as a serial opportunist. He was the cheeky scavenger, the man who would whip the banana out of your hands as you were peeling it. But did he have less eye-catching gifts? Christie insisted that he play a more measured game. His passes, always long but sometimes inaccurate in the early days, according to Joubert, needed to be on the money if Stransky was to succeed 
with his drop goal strategy. Everyone naturally remembers the aching arc of that drop goal in extra time of the final against New Zealand. Few, however, remember that the plan was hatched early in the competition, this time with a less poetic drop in the Springboks opening game against Australia at Newlands. The first was work a day, from close to the posts, slightly sneaky. Stransky's second kick was pure, towering and immense, launching 10,000 framed colour photographs in 10,000 suburban bars across the land. Yours also needed to tackle, said Christie. He couldn't leave the drudgery to his loose forwards. The final was a case in point. Going low as Jonah Lomu thundered down the middle of Ellis Park like a wagon train, Van Vesthazen trapped him round the ankles, the burly all-black coming tumbling down. Quote, We discussed the strategy with James Small that he would hug his touchline and so force Lomu inside, says Jaber. I don't know if James made a tackle because all of it had been done by Joost and Yarpi Milder. The World Cup magnified Van der Westhuizen's abilities as a defensive scrum half. He emerged from it a more rounded player, more attuned to the needs of the team. Ironically, says Joubert, the Bok management team wanted to play a more expansive type of game after the World Cup. Rugby with brains, he calls it, but were never afforded the opportunity to do so. Christie fell ill and the World Cup players found that in an attempt to prevent them from throwing their lot in with Ross Turnbull's breakaway rugby league, South African rugby officials inadvertently created two salary bans. It made for itch with the non-World Cup players. Far from reveling in the post-World Cup euphoria, the South African rugby environment in 1996 and 1997 became rotten with mistrust. Post-Christie coaches Andre Markraff and Carl Duplessis came and went. By the time Nick Mallett arrived on the scene, Van Vesthuizen was circumspect and, like many of the World Cup winners, slightly bruised. He had little reason to be cheerful. At first, Joost believed he'd encountered another Macintosh in Mallett. According to Edward Griffith's books Joost for Love and Money, Van Vesthuizen was under the impression that Mallett talked too much. He was too emotional, encouraging Joost to communicate more. At first, Joost balked, but over time Mallett's erudition impressed him. The 1998 Tri-Nations began for South Africa in Perth, so-called Perthfontein because of its South African immigrant population, with a test in Wellington against the All Blacks a week later. There were new faces in the Springbok side. Henry Honeyball at fly half, Andre Sneeman at centre, Kreno Otto at lock. But despite the comparative inexperience, they all knew the importance of winning in Western Australia. Van Vesthuizen scored a classic opportunistic try and the box scraped home by a point. Thanks to a Herculean forward effort and a slice of Peter Rousseau brilliance, they won 13-3 in Wellington against the All Blacks, and with their two home games yet to come, it suddenly looked as if they might be in with a Tri-Nations shout for the first time ever. Mallet had eulogised about Joost as a defensive scrum half since he took over the Springbok coaching reins, but with the box 5-23 down against the All Blacks in Durban, it needed the old Joost magic to galvanise his team. 
With Korfball-trained eyes, he spotted a gap in the retreating all-back defences and galloped in, the New Zealanders hardly managing to lay a hand on him. The try inspired a book turnaround. They won the Test 24-23, comfortably beating the Wallabies at Ellis Park in the final game of the competition to win their first ever Tri-Nations. Six years earlier, Van der Westhuizen had played international opposition for the first time when he played for the junior Springboks against the visiting All Blacks. He had now come full circle. He was now widely regarded as the best scrum half in the world. After him, scrum halves would never be nuggety or lippy again. With his sniping, his kicking game, his speed and his difficult-to-tackle brilliance, he had prized apart the narrow definition of what a scrum half could do. If there was something of the Pied Piper about Gareth Edwards, his nearest comparison, there was something of Jack and the Beanstalk in Newest. He was nimble, he was deadly, and he was quick. Van intended to dominate the Bulls in the latter stages of his career, becoming slightly bigger in popular stature than his beloved Loftus Fasfeld. As new Bulls coach, Jaber remembers having an altercation with Eust about ritual Thursday golf days, saying that he didn't think they were a good idea. Eust stormed off in a strop, threatening to throw his lot in with the Sharks. Quote, How are you going to do that? asked the coach. You can barely speak a word of English. And yet, for all their early friction, Jaber remembers that Fanevestes never lost his souped-up competitiveness despite a serious knee injury later on in his career. Quote, I brought Fabian Juries up to the Bulls and used to give the guys two-on-twos against each other in a narrow space, says Joubert. Fabian had such a brilliant step that he always got past Eust somehow, but old Eust still chased him all the way to the try line. 